Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lines Led by Donkeys podcast, but uh, I guess you probably already knew that. If you like what we do here on the show, consider supporting us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash donkeys. Just $5 per month gets you every regular episode early, access to our community Discord, a digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, as well as its audiobook, read by me, and over five years of bonus content. By supporting the show, you support us and allow us to keep our show as it has always been ad-free. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I am Joe, and with me in the content mines thousands of miles away in the wonderfully sunny place known as London is Tom. It's actually going to be really sunny today it's meant to be like the one fucking time i talk about london weather i'm wrong the one time but see it's because nate isn't on the show whenever nate is on the show the weather has to be shit so he has something to complain about whereas you know i'm like went to the gym this morning i it was nice and sunny when i was walking back to the studio you know i'm i'm in a good mood i'm joined by the undercover turk joe kasabian you know that's right (laughs) if if the people in my twitter mentions are correct that is true Uh, (laughs) but speaking of the gym joe i for anyone who follows me online you saw the saga uh, the other day but i need to talk about people have a long list of my gym gripes crossfitters people who you know use too much equipment at once but Yesterday, people who wear Gymshark, or no, that was me. That was me. That was that was my crepe. <laughs> so, but yesterday, I encountered a new type of guy in the gym, and I'm gonna say up front, I think it should be illegal for anime fans to go to the gym. Like we, you're just saying that because I can lift more weight than you. <laughs> but, but the difference is, is that like you were like you have them like both, you know, separate pillars of your personality. I'm talking about the type of people who wear like an Akatsuki cloak to the gym and like they get on the treadmill to Naruto run. and like they're Naruto running on the treadmill. They're like huffing ammonia salts and like screaming like they're charging a Rasengan. But yesterday, <laughs> see, you're shit talking anime fans and I don't even know what that means. It's, it's you know, the, the blue ball that Naruto Naruto throws. See, the only thing I know about Naruto is the run. Um, and I have the, I aged out of shonen anime at that point. I was a Dragon Ball Z kid. I'm, I have a couple years on you, so I give you a pass. Yeah. Speaking, well, I've never watched Naruto. It's just true that like being on the internet, I know these things, but speaking of Dragon Ball, I was working from home yesterday. So I decided three o'clock. Okay. I'm going to hit the gym. Big mistake. One, because schools are back in, you know, term. So that means like, uh, half three to four o'clock there is like a hundred sixteen year olds who are now trying to emulate the youtuber of the year's workout which is sam sulik a 21 year old who is on so much trend that he can't breathe whereas like trend hard eat clen <laughs> whereas like last year it was like they were watching tiktokers talking about you know like optimal workouts you know do like this lap pull down that's like at a 32.7 degrees angle to like get like 1.11111% more activation in your lats now it's just like a dude who eats cereal and Krispy Kreme for breakfast and like blasts so much train that he likes he doesn't have that's not a COVID cough that's a trend cough (laughs) yeah and we're now we're now referencing things that I hope a fraction of our audience understands (laughs) um 
actually, before you go on, do you want to explain what trend coffee is? <laughs> so, uh, trend, <laughs> trend, trend is the meth of trend, like, trend, trend balone acetate for those unfamiliar. Yeah, trend is like I guess I've heard, I've heard it described as the the meth of performance enhancing drugs because it's you know, steroids generally speaking are pharmaceutical products. Like, yes. They're, they're I mean, you can get stuff that are, that is like cooked in some guy's kitchen, but generally speaking, they come from countries where they are legal and easy to obtain. If you're in the United States, it's almost all coming from Mexico. I don't know about the UK. Uh, um, the UK, it's mostly coming from like Thailand. Uh, ooh, that is a long journey. There's like, they come from Turkey as well. So yeah, like your basic pillars of That's steroids X. are going to yeah. be your growth you're lean and then you're kind of like your fat burner. So you have like stuff that will increase your heart rate. So it increases your body temperature. So you burn more fat. You have like stuff that like helps with protein synthesis and like helps you get bigger. And then, and you, then you have trend, which <laughs> seems to be a weapon of mass destruction for your insides. <laughs> um, it's, it's cooked in a guy's kitchen. From my understanding, it has absolutely no, uh, pharmaceutical usage whatsoever. It's not an uh, like most of these drugs can be prescribed, like HGH, testosterone. A lot of these things can be t- uh, prescribed for people for legitimate medical conditions. Trend cannot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just like blasting testosterone because I'm like going bald. And like most, so the reason why I made a joke about trend cough is because if you see a bodybuilder who looks like a human cloud monster, um, they're probably on trend and they always have like this rib shattering cough. Yep. So what happens with trend cough is, so there's a general rule with, um, being in the gym is that you can be big, you can be lean or you can be strong. You can only naturally be one or two of those things at the max with steroids. You can add in a third one. So you can either be really small and really lean which is like the Brad Pitt look in Fight Club. That's like, and it's funny because my cousin used to be a personal trainer and uh, he said, I remember like asking him, he's like, oh yeah, most people when they come in like to do personal training is like, oh, I want to look like that. And it's just like, yeah, just stop eating and do cardio. Or the, uh, what they said, always sunny in Philadelphia with that Jesus on the cross look. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or you can be like really big, but you'll have a higher body fat percentage, but you look huge or you can just be a power lifter and be like really fat and really strong yeah, you can be a human dumpster which yeah. is like that's it, fine i mean is it the healthiest thing on earth probably not uh you know like we on the show advocate sustainable healthy living yeah um, which none of these things are yeah <laughs> so like yeah trend cough pretty much like when you inject trend you so after maybe like 30 seconds you will have the world's most uncontrollable cough like imagine you're trying to literally cough your lungs out of your body and like people they can't figure out why it happens but like it literally feels like you're about to die for five minutes like um gotta have a lung gains i want an eight pack but it crossed (laughs) my left just my left lung because my right one has already collapsed but yeah like i was watching a video of a dude like talking about like you know why it's so dangerous that like people so young are getting into like a lot of peds and steroids is that like you know he was saying like the first time he ever did trend he literally had to lie on the floor of his to- of his bathroom for five minutes feeling like he was about to die because his body was trying to like 
cough out all this stuff. That's poison. Yeah. I mean, I I think, I mean, is, this is not, in fact, the, 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 the historical weightlifting podcast, but, like, I think a lot of it has to do with, like, people don't realize the kind of, like, body dysmorphia popular uh, media can put oh, in yeah. young men. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, you know, nobody is, uh, no, nobody's like, I want to grow up and have a normal body type um, or a healthy one. You know, they're, they're, uh, they're ingesting so much media that makes like, oh, if, if you want to be a normal man, you want to be a real man. You have to look like a Marvel superhero. Yeah. Which is, they're all on incredible amounts of steroids. So that leads to, I mean, you can go to any gym in the United States and, and you can find performance enhancing drugs or you can simply buy them on the internet he, he, it's the same way here yeah taking a trenbolone acetate to beat the body dysmorphia and taking estradiol to beat the gender dysphoria yeah <laughs> it's out of you there are two wolves both of them are coughing horrifically <laughs> and both of them are trans um <laughs> but anyway back to what i was going to talk about so i walked into the gym yesterday and my card wasn't working for like the the gate thing that I have to swipe to like get into where the gym area is to go like go up the stairs and like go in. So I'm like, okay, I need to ask someone at the counter. And I like take my headphones out and I'm like, why are people screaming at each other? And I look over. There is a man in a Michael Jordan Goku hoodie. No, Goku basketball jersey. So it has the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls 23 on it with Goku on both sides of the jersey. <laughs> so he has like regular Goku on the back and then he has like Goku blue or is it Goku black on the front. And like this dude and the woman behind the counter and I felt really bad for it, kept saying to Wait, him. Wait, is Goku black Goku with blackface? No, he has like... <laughs> I think it's like beyond Super Saiyan 4. I don't know. If I'll you take your word for if it. you want to explain Goku Black. No, Goku Black has like pink hair. Yeah, okay. Um Goku Black is, tra- is trans Goku. Um Okay. So I thought it was Dutch Goku. <laughs> yeah, we we take these Shenzhou beans, you know, we go into the hyperbolic time chamber. We're going to train to be Vegeta. Um Thanks, I hate it. Please go on. <laughs> so the lady behind the counter is like keep, keeps repeating is like don't swear at me, don't swear at me. And this dude is like full on shouting at this woman and like only starts giving out to the other staff because I kind of go up and like elbow him out of the way to say to this lady, he's like, oh, my card isn't working. Would you mind buzzing me in? And I did it in a way, like in a way that he knew I was there and was kind of like, okay, I need to move on. Wait, why was he, why was he attempting to go super saying on so, the receptionist? I'm- I will get there. So I go and I get my, you know, I get my NOCO, get a bottle of water and I'm going up to the gym and I'm like, cool, going to work out. And like, see this guy go around and then go upstairs. And then I go upstairs and he comes out of like a sideway, uh, came up like a different way and I see him and he's wearing flip flops. Then I get into the gym. So this dude in his like Goku Michael Jordan jersey is adamant about going into the gym with no shoes or socks on. That is disgusting. Did he miss the wave of the Vibram five-finger shoes a decade ago? Like, and, like, this dude is, like, listening to music, singing to himself. And, like, look, there are people who very clearly have, like, like, mental problems in my gym. That's fine. They're nice people. I will chat away to them if they talk to me. A lot of them will, like, you know, sing to themselves, wander around, talk to random people, and 
Talking to random people in the gym isn't a sign of mental illness, but... It is to me. Leave me alone. <laughs> but, like, this dude is, like, you know, he's clearly all there. He's just an asshole. And he's, like, walking around the gym with the dogs out. He's hitting, like, very shit squats. He's, like, hitting, like, incline bench and then wanders off. And, like, there's no... The, the pitter-patter of Goku feet. <laughs> there's, there's like, no power rack, so I have to do, like, military press just in the middle of the free weight section. So I have to, like, clean the barbell up and, like do fucking like sh- overhead shoulder presses like I'm about to kill myself and a dude comes up to me he's like oh are you using that bench and I'm like no I'll work away the dude gets managed to get in two full sets before Michael Jordan Goku like comes back and says he was like oh yeah I'm using that bench I'm like you fucking walked off for five minutes what the fuck like you can't do that all the while this dude's like disgusting dogs are out like <laughs> oh god uh, so the only thing I'm learning from this is if I if I for some reason find myself in London for a prolonged period of time to not go to the gym. Like, look, I argue that the natural place for weebs is not, you know, like a traditional gym. Just become a power lifter because power lifters are all nerds. I love you guys. That's true. Some of my friends are power lifters, you know. I think it. I think it comes with the obsession, like because to be a power lifter, you have to be fucking obsessed. Yeah. Um. You're not doing it for aesthetics. You're doing th- like three lifts repeatedly, and you look awful. Um. <laughs> so like, <laughs> and you feel terrible. Your knees hurt. Your back Become, hurts. Like pretend you ate like the gum gum fruit, and you're now you're you're do becoming a deadlift specialist because you've really long arms. Yeah, that, that's just me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Joe's got the leverages of you know a uh, a strain of like Paleolithicus or like one of those other you know uh, primates that was in the Homo erectus line but died out. Now, Tom, speaking of disgusting uh, uh, unwashed feet, <laughs> we have an episode to go over. Yeah, shit. Um, <laughs> have you ever heard of the Japanese United Red Army? No, but I assume there's probably some weird weebs with anime profile pictures who are big fans of them. Honestly, I feel like this might th- this much like the Khmer Rouge is a group that even the strangest people online give a wide berth to. Uh, and <laughs> oh, actually, I should I should caveat that with something since Nate isn't here. <laughs> I have to say the word caveat because the officer is gone. Um after our Khmer Rouge series came out, our Discord community found a Khmer Rouge role-playing Discord group. What? Um, yes. Uh, they attempted to gain entry into said group to see what how fucked up it was, and they failed. Um, so I should say, the United Red Army might stand alone on this one. And since Tom is considered our Irish terror correspondent here on the show... Um, and I just had to sit through four weeks of Andreas Botter. I decided to find a group even stranger, led by a guy, well, a guy and a girl, so kind of similar, but a guy that is significantly more insufferable than Andreas Botter. Okay, off the bat, is the group fucking? Like, are they, you know, Boston? Are, are they- oh, no. By law... It is permanent no not November. Okay, so... We'll we'll get to that point. Yeah, so, like, any episode going forward, if you are a habitual listener of this show, anytime we talk about a terrorist group, you can break them into the two factions of busting and non-busting. 
They're strictly non-busting. Okay. Um, though, before we get to the United Red Army, we have to talk about their origins in pre- and post-war Japan, because pre- and post-war Japanese politics are fucking chaotic. <laughs> Everyone's getting killed with a doohickey. <laughs> Let me get the device. <laughs> now, the first what we could consider Japanese leftist movement began, like many others, in the 1920s. But uh, this was the Japanese Communist Party, and it was founded in 1922. Unlike many others, it was founded not by a hardline Marxist, Leninist, or Trotskyist. Many of its founders, such as Yamakawa Hitoshi, Sakai Toshihiko, Arahata Kansen, were not those kind of people. They're followers and supporters of a man named Kotoku Genjiro, a man credited not with introducing Marxism or Leninism to Japan, but rather anarchism to Japan. Yeah! Now we're in my realm. No gods, <laughs> now, no states. Fucking burn everything. You know how his story probably ends then. In a different <laughs> time, Denjiro would have been a member of the Japanese aristocracy, though at a low level. His family was born from samurai, and they supported the Meiji Restoration. From a young age, he was a political radical, though. At the age of 16, he joined a pro-democracy movement that called not only for the cancellation of unequal tre treaties with the West, but the introduction of freedom of speech, press, and political rights to Japan, none of which existed yet. <laughs> so he was exiled from Tokyo before he was even 18. Friendship um, with the West now ended. Anar now anarchism is my best friend. It gets weirder. Uh, now, as Japan turned from an isolated island to a sprawling empire, he became vocally anti-war, rightfully comparing what Japan was doing to the same thing the Westerners had just done to them. He was also the first person to translate the Communist Manifesto into Japanese, so he was insanely, in, just intensely boring. So, like, are um, we talking about, like, opposition to the Sino-Russian War, World War I, uh, he, everything? He was, he was uh he was opposed to the invasion of Korea. He was opposed to this is before World War II. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um he was opposed to the Russo-Japanese War, uh which was legitimately so popular that people protested in favor of it before it even began in Japan. Go back and listen to our series about it. People think it's one of our best of all time, but like the war and empire in general was incredibly popular with the Japanese people at the time. <laughs> not if you're uh, not if you're Denjiro, though. Down and with peace. Down with peace. <laughs> like, quite literally, that's what they were doing. Yeah. Um, and translating the Communist Manifesto at the time and publishing it in Japan was illegal. Uh, though he just barely avoided jail time. Though things eventually did get too hot and he left Japan, ending up like everybody, in California. He, there, he discovered the works of Peter Kropotkin and was the first person to translate those into Japanese as well. And he spread them amongst the large population of Japanese Americans in California. Though, rather than just being a weird theory guy, he was like, yo, fuck this, let's get guns. And like, he wanted to spread an anarchist revolution, not only, not only in California, but also in Japan. He's like, you know, once we get weapons, which, you know, it's America, you can go buy them at the hardware store in the early 1900s. We can go back to Japan and do it there, too. Uh, but by 1906, he had returned to Japan and ran to what was the first Japanese leftist party, the Japan Socialist Party, who begrudgingly to him advocated for electoralism, which, you know, he hated as an anarchist. Yeah, like... Early 20th century Japanese Marxists, you know, like, I can't imagine, like, the politics of the, like, 1906, this is, like, before the October Revolution, 
Like, and not to mention, there's no political freedoms in Japan at the time. So it's yeah. like, why the fuck are we wasting our time on this? Yeah, like, like we're talking like Meiji Restoration, where like, okay, let's open everything. Let's start wearing hats and pants. We are Westerners now. And, it's ri- and they're about to go all bricks, no gas on Empire as well. Like, yeah. it's not a good time to be someone that is not a hardcore nationalist. Yeah, and like, you know, th- this is like during the time when stuff like eugenics is like really starting to ramp up and like the Japanese are because like the eugenics kind of like really quickly ran into the problem of like, well, there's white people, but what if there's white people of other races? So it was like, you know, people like the Vietnamese and the Japanese, while both from Asia were very different and like eugenics very quickly was like, hmm, Japanese, maybe they're the white people of Asia. Mr. Denjiro, let me see your brain pan. And like to be yeah. uh, to be honest, like uh, me and Nate and you have talked about this. Like Japan really is the Britain of of Asia. That's fair. Uh, other than their other than their you know train system works. Yeah, their train uh. system works, but like <laughs> they have this kind of um, worldwide perception of being like very polite and like you know lo- like. This whole shit about like, Wait, do British people think they're polite when oh, they go? Oh yeah, abroad? like they like British people like have this idea, or like even like worldwide people think like British people are polite, and it's like this like if you ask people from Britain about queuing, they'll say like, oh, people in Britain love queuing. Oh god, I'm like, so oh. sick of fucking hearing. And that. it's like, no, they don't. Have you ever seen a British person in a queue that lasts more than like two minutes? Because I have, and I saw a woman scream at someone in Greg's. Because she had to wait ninety seconds for her like cheese and bean like pasty slice. This is why whenever you see British people talking about standing in a line, you need to inject that situation with a whole bunch of people from the Caucasus who will just shit it all up. <laughs> and like you know, like Japan, but like colonial history as well. Like it's real bad. Yeah, yeah re- we 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 have talked extensively about the Japanese Empire's deeply fucked up politics. Um, yeah, like, you know, like... And that is where Denjiro's injecting himself in the middle of. <laughs> Rather than fold himself in this new wave of Japanese leftism and, and encourage political change from the inside, he rejected it. What happened next is kind of up for debate. In 1910, Japanese police raided a man's house and discovered what they believed to be bomb-making materials. They also found anarchist literature that could have only come from one of the various organizations as loosely affiliated with Denjiro. So upon a massive amount of torture being applied, they discovered, wouldn't you know it, there is a nationwide anarchist plot to murder the emperor and take down the entire government in the fires of anarchist revolution. Fuck yeah, it was probably seven people. It, it probably wasn't even real. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, if there's one thing you need to know about anarchists is like, they love lying about the, uh, the size of their plots. I mean, Denjiro had a fair amount of followers, but there is... There's no real evidence of any kind of nationwide plot in any stretch of the imagination. All of the evidence is circumstantial, and virtually every proponent of anarchism, what you could consider radical leftism, Denjiro included, all ended up swinging from the end of a rope. And uh, this directly led to what was called the Peace Preservation Law, which effectively legalized the continuous unending Red Purge of Japan into the 1920s. Now, this is where we pick back up with the Japanese Communist Party because they were formed in 22 and then outlawed in 25. And many, <laughs> many of its members were thrown in prison. 
And ironically enough, once in prison, and you know, this is the Japanese penal system in the twenties and tortured mercilessly. Um, if they refuse to quote unquote convert to Japanese nationalism, that being the only allowed political affiliation within the empire, they would have to stay in prison. Many of them refused throughout the entirety of World War II, which meant they, which meant they could not get drafted into the Imperial Army. And uh, so who really won that battle? I they mean, all like, sat through World War II and survived. I mean, like that, they were playing chess while everyone else was playing checkers. You know, like if, right. if it's like, hey, yeah, I'm going to like, you know, stick by my beliefs. I'm going to sit in this cell. Yes. Am I being tortured mercilessly? Yes. But I I'm not going to be strapped into, you know, a zero and having to, like, land in Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Now, after World War II, the party was legalized by the American occupational authorities, and that probably sounds weird for a lot of people listening. Now, Japan was rapidly being rebuilt at this rate, and the Communist Party, which was then led by a guy named Sanzo Nosaka, uh, was uh, elected as its leader. Now, Nosaka had an interesting career during World War II. He spent it in China, but not the way you think. Uh, he was not a member of the Imperial Army. Instead, he was a member of the Chinese Red Army and worked to spread communism throughout Japanese POWs. And he did an incredibly good job. He was charismatic, well-spoken, friendly, and convincing without speaking like an academic. He was able to convince thousands of Japanese POWs into switching sides. At one point, like all of Mao Zedong's artillery was manned by Japanese communists. <laughs> so like, and this is all because of Nosaka. Now yeah. the Americans originally loved Nosaka. Remember the cold war really hadn't started yet. And while Americans clearly were not big fans of communists by any stretch of the imagination, times were different. The American occupational forces saw him as someone who could quickly organize Japanese workers, which they needed. Nosaka also liked the Americans because despite the fact of them being a gargantuan Imperial power at this time, he saw them as necessary to destroy the Japanese Empire, which they obviously did. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Nosaka saw the Americans as being pro-worker and pro-labor, which they were. Yeah. The party... <laughs> Ooh, hold I, that thought. I, like, you know, I think it's worth saying that, yeah, pro-worker and pro-labor for a certain type of worker and a certain type of laborer. Well, remember, the Cold War hadn't started yet, the Chinese had not won the Chinese Civil War yet. So American opinions on communists are rapidly going to change, and that is going to be connected to just how quickly Nosaka and the Communist Party become popular within Japan. Because millions of Japanese people quickly join the labor force. They create labor unions. And in 1946, in the first elections after the war, Nosaka is elected to the Diet, the Japanese parliament. By 1949, the Communist Party received a full 10% of the popular vote and multiple seats in the Diet. However, by 1949, shit had changed. American attitudes towards the Communist Party, unions, and workers, and communism in general, had changed drastically since 1946. The Cold War is now in full swing. The Chinese Communist Party is becoming a specter haunting the thoughts and nightmares of american foreign policy thinkers and they would be goddamned if they were gonna let a bunch of japanese reds take over their fucking occupational project yeah i mean like mccarthy and hoover are like chafing with how hard they are and you know th there's other reasons why the communist party became popular than just being good organizers the the, the rapid rebuilding of japan and the rapid rebuilding of the Japanese capitalist class, if you want to call it that, had created massive inequalities in Japan. So, like, of course, the Communist Party has become popular. 
and thus began the second Red Purge of Japan. (laughs) Yep. The Japanese government working in tandem with occupational authorities and the Japanese private sector fired anyone from their jobs that might hold any kind of leftist beliefs. They didn't even have to be members of the party. Many members of the party were legally forbidden from taking part in political activities, and some were even thrown in prison. Now, this is where we kind of get the birth of militant leftism in Japan, because Joseph Stalin demanded that the Japanese Communist Party disregard electoralism and take up arms in revolution, which Nosaka refused. Nosaka's entire thing was giving communism a friendly Japanese face. And not to mention, he had lived through the Chinese Civil War. <laughs> He's like, I don't want to fucking do that here. Uh he he completely rejected violent revolution. Yeah, like, once again, Stalin has one solution, because when you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And when you're Joseph Stalin, you're a giant mustachioed hammer. <laughs> now, every problem looks like Hungarians. <laughs> now, the Communist Party fractured at this point. Shocked, I know. Nosaka was driven out of the party, and a more radical militant group took over. They took to the mountains to form Maoist people's war units to rally the farmers and organize fire bombings of police stations and trains within the cities. However, the revolutionary urbanites of the party fucked up pretty bad here. Now, Maoism cannot be applied anywhere on Earth, specifically not in Japan. Their rural countrymen were seen as uneducated country bumpkins by the Communist Party members and easily be turned to their side. That could not be further from the truth. All of, all of them were educated. Many had did university educations. And rather than being poor, disabused peasantry, uh, they were mostly well-off, middle class. And many of them were like the bellwether for conservative political parties in Japan. Yeah, like, but like, this is why like Maoism and in general, like, post-Chinese Civil War, like, the Cultural Revolution worked, is that, like, the process of stuff like Fenshen and, you know, the revolutionary, you know, practice in rural areas, is that it was, like, targeted towards treating, like, rural participants as equal as their urban counterparts. You know, like, there was sti- they were seen at the same level, and the apparatus for applying, you know, communist and, like, Maoist doctrine in the countryside was kind of adapted a little bit, but it was kind of the same as in the cities. Like, every people weren't looked down on, and if anything, they were looked up to because they were seen as, like, so important to the Cultural Revolution. Sure, yeah. And, you know, in Japan, that... that the divide really didn't exist because the rural workers couldn't really be considered peasants, and they were doing fine. They're like, this is actually what we want. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the farmers told the communists to fuck off, refused to give them food or shelter, and soon the people's war units had to retreat back to the cities, starving and cold. Within a few years, the party abandoned their militant line. Nosaka was brought back in, but uh, that didn't really fix the problems. They didn't mean people in Japan were going to re-embrace them, nor were the newly militant Japanese left going to re-embrace Nosaka's friendly attitude. By the mid-1950s, the overall feeling that the Japanese people had during the Communist Party, remember only a few years before they won 10% of the popular vote, had turned. They had lost all their seats in the Diet, mostly in their response because despite that their, their war parties in the mountains failing miserably, they had firebomb trains and police boxes, which 
was unpopular. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they also began to lose their support amongst their main base, student activists. The party had helped form and eventually pretty much taken over something called the Zynga Kuren, which was a coalition of left-wing university students and groups. Oh, the uh, you, a coalition of university students? This can only go well. The students weren't necessarily pissed at the party's militant swing, as they did believe in the concepts of direct action in order to change things. But what had turned them away from the party was their refusal to distance them themselves from Stalinism or the Soviet Union after first Khrushchev's secret speech, which was you know the anti-Stalin speech, and the Soviet invasion of Hungary after the revolution. Furthermore, as the students became bolder and more active protesting U.S. occupation, namely the ever-expanding footprint of the military bases, the party told them to stop and stop being so like... Uh, like st- stop starting fires effectively. Now the students ignored this order, and this culminated in what became known as Bloody Sonagawa, as the Zankakuren, joined by thousands upon thousands of others, protested the expansion of an, of an American airbase in Sunagawa, which would require the eviction of 140 families. The Zankakuren took a new tactic with them to the protests, knowing the brutality of the Japanese police. They decided to use that against them. They gave orders to anybody that would listen to dress in all white and not fight back against the police whatsoever. So when the cops eventually did show up, thousands upon thousands of them, and began beating the ever-loving shit out of the protesters, their red blood showed vividly on their white clothes for the watching cameras of the media. The public overwhelmingly turned against the government and the U.S. military on this issue, and eventually the extension project was dropped. Though by the 1960s, the Japanese New Left continued to grow within student movements. The Zynga Kuren still existed, of course, but there are splinter groups such as the Communist League, nicknamed the Bund. No, not that one. As well as the Revolutionary Communist League. The Bund being Marxist-Leninist and the other one being Trotskyist. Not that that is important. (laughs) Oh, no, Joe, it's very important. It's very important. I assure you, nobody cares. Together, <laughs> together they work to take over the Zynga Kuren from the inside through both fair and admittedly rigged elections. During one action, the ANPO protest against the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, they smashed into the National Diet Compound, busted out some sick dance moves on some tables, sang some songs, and left peacefully. When they tried to do this again in January of 1960, Michikoku Kanba, a 22-year-old protester, was beaten to death by the police. Yeah, it's kind of hard to do the uh, the worm to like someone playing the oud while you're being kicked in the shin, like kicked in the spine. Yeah, yeah, and like the police argue that they that she was simply crushed by protesters, but yeah, no. Now, now these protests were actually hugely successful. It forced the resignation of the Kishi government. Now, Kishi was one of the most evil men in the Empire of Japan, arguably. In the entire Axis powers that was not executed after World War II. I can't, I'm not going to go into what he did at length. Uh, Behind the Bastards did a good series on him. Go listen to that or Google him. He was a fucking bastard, but he had to resign from the, from the backlash of these protests. The protests also stopped President Eisenhower of the United States from visiting Japan, though it didn't stop the signing of the security treaty. So they're seen as a failure by the members and soon the boon collapsed under, you guessed it, a pile of infighting. This did not stop various splinter groups from continuing their direct actions, though, this time more and more violently. They showed up armed with poles, spears, and firebombs to fight the cops, and massive fights broke out throughout the 60s. However, the spark of militant spirit, the 
national security apparatus of Japan had little problem picking them apart, and soon huge groups began falter after hundreds of them were arrested during protests and faced with decades in prison. And at this same time, Shinzo Abe's grandfather was getting into bed with the Moonies. If only we have a homemade the solution to this problem. <laughs> so go get the doohickey. <laughs> Soon the activists of the New Japan left saw all of this as futile. Public support for their actions collapsed. Uh, their membership dropped. And soon they decided, fuck public support. We don't need it. Now, as these more mainstream groups, you could call it, fell apart, came out the true radicals. Those who thought armed rebellion and insurrection against the state was the only way to solve their problems. And the, f- the first of these group was the Red Army Faction, not the one with Andreas Potter. Wait, 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 wait. Thank you. Wrong country. <laughs> what, they, what, what are they, Joe? What are they? Okay, fair enough. Now, these guys broke off from the Second Communist League because they did reform at one point, and were led by a guy named Shiomi Takia. According to Dissenting Japan, a history of Japanese radicalism and counterculture, Shiomi's main theory in the founding of the Red Army faction was that by first carrying out a successful armed proletarian revolution in Japan, Japan would then become the headquarters of a worldwide revolution against the United States of America and its allies with the Red Army faction becoming its vanguard. Now, the second Bund, as it was known, was not a very big fan of these guys, and this led to a string of tit-for-tat kidnappings between the Bund and the faction. And, uh, <laughs> like, they literally kidnapped each other's leadership at various points. At one point, uh, the, the leader of the Red Army faction had to escape out of a university window because this, like, the headquarters was in Meiji University. Um, so he had to escape out of a university window using a fire hose as a rope. When one of the other leaders of the Red Army faction tried to join him, he fell off the hose and died. This fucking, this fucking, like, MacGyver shit, like, <laughs> oh, God. Look at, if you are in a group called the quote-unquote Red Army faction, whether it's brackets Japanese, brackets German, or brackets whatever, you h- have to dedicate your adult existence to doing the dumbest shit possible, like climbing out the window. I'm starting to think any kind of union between any Japanese and German ideas is a bad idea with a historical precedent for it. (laughs) (laughs) This is the new Axis brackets Red Army faction. Now, with this escape, the Red Army faction was on its feet, but short of people. They had a small core group of followers but needed more, so they believed. So they began simply beginning to kidnap and beat the shit out of other Boond members until they agreed to join their faction. Not By the, September that- of 1969, they managed to have 200 people within the ranks. So as you can imagine, differing degrees of loyalty. Yeah, uh, I, I was going to say, like, you know, beating the shit out of someone doesn't really endear, the, endear you to them. Hold that thought. Oh, fuck. Though I will say, like, the Red Army faction of all the groups we're going to talk about here, the Red Army faction of Japan, um, has the most amount of defectors to the police for reasons, as you can imagine. Now, the first stage of the Red Army faction's revolution was dubbed the Osaka War, because it happened in Osaka. No shit. This plan was to firebomb police boxes, once again going back to the classics, and then steal the cops' handguns, which they thought would be locked inside of them. 
They they would they thought they were going to steal so many guns they'd be able to distribute them amongst the masses and encourage people to vent their rage against the establishment government and capitalists and bourgeoisie and whatever you know like a Japanese version of Bane. However, they never actually checked on the last bit of information: guns being stored in the police boxes. Oh, I bet being Bane. I thought it was going to be like no one cared about who I was until I put on the mask and now. They did firebomb some police boxes, but they were horrified to find out there were no fucking guns inside, so all of it was for nothing. As they carried out their attacks, more and more members were arrested, and they decided that the key to our revolutionary plan in Japan would be to create overseas bases from which they could launch future attacks from, away from the arms of the Japanese security apparatus. Which is ironic when you think about how much they hated American military bases. Yeah, exactly. Like, But my question is like, how ubiquitous are arms in post-war Japan? Like, how easy is it to get a gun? Now, I will say Japanese police are armed. They had to this day. They have revolvers. Yeah. Um. But weapons in general, like owning a pistol in Japan, is virtually impossible. You can own a hunting rifle or shotgun with intensive background and psychological exams. I believe you even have to check in with the police every time you use it and turn in your expended cartridges. Like, it's very strict. So you're not going to get blasted by a police officer doing a JoJo's pose? No, the last time I saw any news about a Japanese cop and a gun, it's because one of them left it in the bathroom on accident. Yeah. They got fired. Um, But, like, yeah, guns are not ubiquitous at all in law enforcement in Japan. They carry them. I they use them very infrequently, much like here in Armenia. Like they they have them, they're more of a decoration. They yeah. don't use them very. Yeah, well. but if you are Japanese and would like to make a gun, please please look up the assassination twenty twenty two assassination of Shinzo Abe. <laughs> there is this podcast is now banned in Japan. Um, <laughs> also, if you are fighting against the police force, if you fill a latex balloon up with an oil based paint and sand, it is very very hard for them to get off their visors. Bleep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Now, the Red Army faction's goal of establishing overseas bases led them to the hijacking of Japan Airlines Flight 351. Now, the plan was to hijack this plane and fly it to Cuba, armed with katanas and a homemade bomb. You know, like, it was a really real... golden era for like hijacking planes like oh yeah there's no security at all but like how did all of these hijackings happen in the kind of you know 20 ish year period and it took 9-11 for everyone to tighten up their security well like i remember we talked about during our raid on Antebe episode that like people were were like upset that israeli airliners during this golden age of hijacking went so far and their security protocols to check people's passports. <laughs> so, you know, uh, and like you're carrying a fucking katana on board. Like, oh, it's simply my sword shaped umbrella. Don't worry about. It. OK, have a good flight. Yeah. Like the now, like the dude from Smash Mouth killed more people than 9-11. That is true. The super sprinter of it Sturgis. I forgot about that. Also, um, so a re- really about 9-11 side story. Uh, I'm currently reading Rendezvous with Rama uh, by Arthur C. Clarke. And in the first, like, two pages, the asteroid that hits Earth that destroys northern Italy. Do you want to know what date it happens on? Was it November 12th? The 11th of September. Yeah, of course it is. What did he know? That's why he had to go. He knew too much. Now... 20 minutes after takeoff, Takamura Tamiya, the leader of the hijack team, jumped up from his seat, drew his sword, and screamed, quote, 
We are Ashita no Joe, which is a reference to the boxing manga Tomorrow's Joe, uh, <laughs> which had become popular amongst Japanese leftists. <laughs> Just doing like a leftist, uh, like a six hour long YouTube video of like leftist analysis of Hajime no Ippo. It's out there. I'm not going to look for it. I know it's out there. It's always out there. He's, it's doing, like he's the, doing the role thing. The role is yeah. actually like a statement about the cyclical nature of uh, material dialectics. And if you are watching any anime related to boxing and you're watching anything other than Hajime no Ippo, you are wrong. Um, small problem with the plan, however. Once they took over the plane, which they did without incident... Um, and told the pilot, we're going to fucking Havana, the pilot had to tell them, this plane cannot go to Cuba. That is too far away. So they decided right then and there, I guess we'll have to go to fucking North Korea. This is where things get very stupid. The pilot told them they would have to refuel in Fukuoka, which is true. And once they did, they landed and exchanged some hostages and uh, to get some maps of Korea, as well as a specific radio frequency the pilot insisted he would need to land in Pyongyang. Yeah, the, if you're catching on, the hijackers are very stupid. The hijackers <laughs> had no idea, but the frequencies were actually for Gimpo Airport in South Korea, not North Korea. And the pilot knew that the hijackers would not be able to tell the difference between the two. So soon, South Korea and Japan are working together, which is kind of crazy when you think about this yeah in the 60s yeah uh, and and the japanese foreign ministry calls ahead to tell south korea what's happening south korea immediately helps by tearing down all of the fucking signage that would say that they were in south korea they removed all their uh, the south korean flags they put up north korean flags they disguise the gimpo airport to look like north korea i like that gimpo <laughs> airport just had north korean flags on hands like you know yeah we gotta go get our weird flag guy every office has one yeah like who, who, despite the fact that the 60s in south korea flying a north korean flag was certainly against the law <laughs> yeah it's a bad time to be super into vexiology yeah uh so only when the plane lands in seoul do the hijackers like look out and realize because like they're still in seoul right like they they kind of disguise the airport but they could still see lights from the city yeah like it's literally if you were a hijacker and you look out the window it is the 60s on the korean peninsula if you see a load of lights you are not in north korea I mean, North Korea was certainly doing better in the 60s than they are today, and they actually were doing better than South Korea at the time. But if you fly into Pyongyang, you're not going to see signs for fucking Samsung and shit. Yeah, you're not, um, not going to see, like, loads of Jollibee, like. <laughs> so only then it was like, hey, goddammit, we're in Seoul. What the fuck? So they, they refused to get off the plane. <laughs> this was the inspiration for the incredible 2000s movie Soul Plane. Boo. <laughs> now, uh, they, they exchange hostages because at this point they're like, we're not getting off this fucking plane. Fuck you. They exchange host- hostages, one of which is the Japanese vice minister for transportation in order to like win all the other hostages being released. At that point, they're refueled and flying to North Korea where they are give- immediately given asylum uh, upon arrival. But, you know, there's no international, you know, uh, Japanese communist revolution coming out of Pyongyang. 
Uh, and this, the Japanese just crack down harder on the group. They eventually arrest the faction's leadership, including Takia, who was actually arrested two weeks before the plane hijacking on accident because he, <laughs> he looked like a disheveled beggar who also looked like someone who was wanted for pickpocketing. I mean, it's the 60s. Le- 60s in the left. Leftists in the 60s just looked like that. Hold that thought. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> The second group that eventually formed the United Red Army was called the Revolutionary Left, which formed out of several different splinter groups, and it was eventually led by a man named Kawashima Suyoshi uh, in 1969. Suyoshi and his group at one point broke through security at the Haneda airport, got onto the tarmac, and began throwing firebombs at the plane carrying the Japanese foreign minister, all while singing the International. <laughs> what, like, why is the aeronautics industry, like... N- put up a fence or something like they did they there was actually quite strict security around haneda they just kind of like burst through it so they're Um, they're doing like a takeshi's castle style like obstacle course to go throw like flares yeah the hot the hardest part was jumping over the rotating foam arm (laughs) over the water pit um and (laughs) they also uh planted homemade bombs at U.S. military bases, firebombed both the U.S. and Soviet embassies, and, of course, them. police stations. Yeah, gotta keep them guessing, you know, like. Yeah. Do you want, do you want to now, hear about Soul Plane? No, I do not. Starring, now, me- starring Method Man, Snoop Dogg, Monique, and uh, Kevin Hart, and Tom Arnold, of all people. Eventually, Tsuyoshi was arrested, and while still running the group from prison, he appointed a woman named Nagata Hiroko to lead the group. And then with the, this new revolutionary goal, of course, which would bring about worldwide communism of breaking him out of prison, um, they decided the best way to do this was with guns, something as we established is very hard to get in Japan. So they would have to find some. And they tried to do this the same way the Red Army faction did by stealing them from cops. So I, I am doing the Matthew McConaughey time is a flat circle thing. Why did every single one of these groups have the same idea? Why did they always try and break someone out of prison? Where are we going to get guns? Let's steal them off police. Let me guess, they were going to try and steal them off patrolling policemen and then failed miserably. Police boxes. So for people who are unaware, a police box or a Koban is like these weird neighborhood tiny police stations in Japan. It's literally a box. It has like two or three cops in it. They're everywhere. And this is like, they believe that there's guns inside. So, and there was, like like I said, cops carry revolvers on them. Mm. Um, Goddamn busting in the cop box. Yeah, gotta get in that cop. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> not in the cop box. And rather than using firebombs, they decided to use lead pipes that they disguised by slipping cut garden hoses over the top of it. Like, don't mind me. I'm just carrying my weirdly rigid garden hose with me through Tokyo. (laughs) I'm carrying my very, very short garden hose. And they charged a group of cops at a police box and immediately got shot for their efforts and one of them died. So after that, they decided, wow, it'd be a lot easier to simply rob a gun store. And they did. Um, And they, they were successful. They stole 10 shotguns and thousands of rounds of shotgun ammo. Though the heat that was brought on them by stealing guns in Japan, which is a big fucking issue, uh, that the cops began scouring the countryside looking for them and the guns. So they ran to Tokyo, where they finally made contact with the new Red Army faction leader and eventual United Red Army faction leader, Mori Sunyo. 
to forge an alliance. This ended up being a match made in heaven. The revolutionary left was penniless, but they had stolen a bunch of guns. While the Red Army faction had a sizable war chest after, you guessed it, robbing a bunch of banks with katanas. But they all had no guns. So like, ah, yin and yang coming together. You have money. I have guns. And uh, so by July 15th, 1971, the two groups officially merged, creating the United Red Army with Mori in charge and Hiroko being his second command with the stated goal to, quote, fight a war of annihilation of guns against the Japanese authorities. Mind you, again, they only have 10 shotguns. You know, Nishan Wade claims that he had loved planes since he was a child, but he had a horrible experience with a typical airline. His dog, Dre, is classified as checked baggage instead of carry-on. He eats a horrible airline meal, and his buttocks get stuck in the toilet while he has diarrhea caused Are by his meal. Are you still on <laughs> During turbulence, uh, uh, when he is stuck on the toilet during turbulence, Andre is fatally sucked through a jet engine after a stewardess accidentally opens the cargo door. I should call her. <laughs> <laughs> now it's pretty clear from the beginning that Mori had no idea who he had allied himself with now Hiroko was very comfortable using violence not for the sake of revolution but for the sake of internal discipline when two members deserted from the group and went to inform to the cops or so she believed Hiroko ordered them to be found and when she asked Mori should we kill these two because neither of these groups had killed anybody at this yeah. point Except the Red Army faction accident when the guy fell out of the window, right? Yeah. He reportedly unseriously said, yeah, so she did. Yeah, she's, she is abiding by, you know, the Irish mother doctrine of to spare the rod is to spoil the child. Well, they did beat them to death with lead pipes, so that's pretty much a rod. Yeah, there you go. Now, th- this execution happened separately, and after the second execution took place, Maury, seemingly exasperated, said, quote, what? They did it again? <laughs> Mind you, he's in charge. Now, seriously, this is a moment of self-radicalization for Maury. He was now in charge of a group that, was inc- that had an incredibly violent element inside of it. And despite the fact he was a violent revolutionary himself, he had never dispensed that kind of violence against his own people before. Now confronted with Hiroko and her much more violent faction, that was clearly willing and able to do so, he decided if he wanted to stay in charge, he'd have to keep up. And he twisted that motherfucking dial to 11. Now, this is how we get into what the United Red Army is best known for. The cadre of the United Red Army moved into a remote mountain compound in Gunma in 1972. And whenever we say remote mountain compound on the show, you know nothing good is going to come from it. Yeah, especially like if they're not fucking, like they're just sitting around reading theory, you know? Oh, I wish they just were theory nerds. It's worse than that. And content warning going forward. You see, this is where the violence really begins. Hiroko was different in her leadership than Mori, and she demanded absolute commitment to her people. She demanded that members swear to her they are not only willing to commit violence, but die in the act of committing it. According to her, the enemy's death could only be achieved with each member's willingness to die. So... Mori took that idea and fucking ran with it. These people were definitely so fun at parties. I think if they went to a party, they would be like, 
I was gonna say hanging out with the dog, but that's something I do. So never mind. <laughs> I was about to say that you went to you went to that party the other day, and I was like, Joe, are you hanging out with the dog? This might shock you guys. <laughs> I'm not much of a party person, uh, as you can imagine. Not everybody, especially in this group of committed revolutionaries, was cool with the idea of dying. So Mori and Hiroko began a process of effectively conditioning one to violence and brainwashing to no longer care about themselves. For starters, the body and all of its needs, whether they be emotional, physical, or otherwise, were to be considered another battleground in the ideological war between capitalism and communism. You see, the human body, a medium for emotional and physical activity, was a weakness, and desire of any kind, comfort of any kind, was seen as bourgeoisie. They literally declared their own bodies as enemy territory that they would have to liberate. Fuck sake. This is the downfall of so many leftist movements. Either you need to have a happy medium of busting. If there's no busting, then people get real pent up and they start, you know, like setting shit on fire and killing each other and placing bombs. If they're busting too much, then you create like a weird polycule that like... Hold that first thought. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm you are like the, this is you know tempering your edging to you know a samurai sword level of sharpness now this inhumanity towards oneself was not true for guns which they saw as living breathing beings of the revolution according to Hiroko during one meeting Mori talked about guns as this quote when you think about the rifle that you're holding right now what kind of gun was that It was a dead gun, which was originally displayed at a gun shop and later used to shoot birds for pleasure. However, once it's snatched away by our hands, this dead gun began to grow and became a gun that we forcefully gained control over. If one possessed it as a mere weapon or hit it as an attic, its growth would stop. And it would not serve our struggle in strengthening our unity and gaining genuine communist subjectivity. It would be pitiful for the gun. In order to strengthen our unity and gain genuine communist subjectivity, you must begin the battle of annihilation. Only then will you transform yourself into a revolutionary soldier who fights the battle of annihilation. While the gun is in your possession, it will transform itself into a gun for the battle of annihilation. The gun does not change you. You change the gun. For that, you need to transform yourself into a revolutionary soldier who can engage in the battle of annihilation. So... Guns are alive and your friend, while your living body, which we need to theoretically kill, is your enemy. Honestly, I preferred this when I heard it the first time in Full Metal Jacket. (laughs) With that came the training in the mountains. People were put on what you could consider a starvation ration, though just above it so they wouldn't die of starvation. So like, just a smidge. No pleasure could be obtained by eating. So food was purposefully made to be flavorless and awful because, you know, Taste is kind of revolutionary. Following that came brutal, continuous physical and military training, though since nobody had any actual military experience to speak of, this mostly consisted of them running around the woods and trying to figure out how to use the shotguns they had just stolen. Then came the thing that they are almost certainly known for the most, the concept of self-critique or self-criticism. Now, first introduced in Joseph Stalin's The Foundation of Leninism in 1924, This concept boils down to people admitting mistakes they had made, finding out the reasons they had made them, and how they could be corrected so they didn't happen again. Now, that's in theory. 
in practice is pretty much only used to root out political enemies, both real and imagined. For the United Red Army, it meant something very, very different. According to Mori, everyone made mistakes, even if they didn't know it. And for those who had no idea of their mistakes, there's only one way of getting them to admit it, by beating the shit out of them until they said something, passed out after being beaten unconscious, and apologized. (sighs) Obviously, most people don't want to just viciously attack others, especially people thought to be comrades and cadres. They've been spending all this time in a small, shitty mountain camp Mm. together. So Mori thought of a way around that. By beating someone unconscious, you helped elevate them to a higher level of self where they could see and understand the mistakes that they had made and therefore would never make them again. This is just furthermore this is just kink shit. Like they're sublimating themselves so much that they're just doing like non-consensual BDSM on each other. I mean I mean non-consensual BDSM is just assault. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just abuse. Like non-consensual like BDSM is just abuse, but like we this are, is where they go from weird political group to outright cult. Yeah, we're we're like passing through the busting uh, Overton window right now, you know, where it's like once you pass through it, you got to get it out somehow. And either you're like beating up people or you're like chain smoking a million cigarettes a day like Andreas Bader. Like, yep. Now, furthermore, hesitating the order to beat someone during self-criticism was a sign that you personally had made a mistake, and you were hiding it. Because why else would you be so uncommitted to the cause that you wouldn't beat your friend unconscious? Like, I remember reading something a couple of years ago when, like, I was, you know, exploring kind of different avenues of kind of, like, theory on the left, and I came across something. I can't remember who wrote it, but it was, like, it was really illuminating considering, like, when you read a lot of stuff, it sounds quite dire, you know, like, the using the body as a weapon and this sort of thing, and it, it kind of... It, in in so many words, like simply said, you know, one should imani- imagine the future after the revolution, after a revolution, as more joyous, more delightful, and increasing the the happiness in people's lives. And when you loo- when you focus so much on like the theoretical aspect of constructing a future, you strip the joy out of it, and then you kind of lose sight of the entire purpose of making people's lives better. Yeah. Yeah, they fetishize violence, effectively. And soon, groups of starving, unwashed people, we'll get to the unwashed bit in a little, would gather around one another and smash each other in the head with fists, feet, and pipes in order to knock people unconscious. Which, remember, specifically unconsciousness was the goal of these beatings. Oh, and if, if, if you failed to pass out from said beating, this itself was a mistake. That would require further beatings. One such man, Mm. Kato, was savagely beaten for hours and didn't lose consciousness. Mori announced that he was not committed to the revolution, so he was tied up and chucked outside in the middle of the winter. This is in December. He died. Oh, like, there... No one tell conservative news pundits about this because the knockout game was, like, bad enough. They're going to say, like... (laughs) The Japanese knockout game. There's leftist Discord mods doing this to each other. Another, Ozaki Mitsuo, was starved and beaten for two days, never losing consciousness until they died. Mori gave the explanation, because he had to explain, like, oh god, all these people are fucking dying now. They've just murdered two people. Not counting the other two that the Rev left had already killed. 
He gave the explanation that their dying was not the fault of the people beating them or starving them, but rather they died because they had failed self-critique. This completely removed any agency from the violence, and instead it was just further evidence of one own of one's own guilt. Yeah, like when when violence becomes like just a, a a functionary of internal discipline, you've kind of lost the point of having discipline at all. Everything like this, so everything I'm going to talk about happens within about a month and a half. Oh God. Um, so yeah, this just this group just became a weird cult of beating each other unconscious. One woman, literally, leading... li- literally, just like wait 20, 25 years and join Fet Life and have someone that likes kicking people in the nuts kick you in the nuts. Like, just be like, like a lot of people will say about or go to North Korea, go to the border, find the guys who kick people in the nuts. Yeah, literally, get get the dudes who have the turbo boots that will kick your nuts into space. You know, go do that. Like the first Japanese space program. Yeah, like a lot of people who will say like, "Oh, people who are into like weird sex shit just need to be normal." In reality, it's these people who need to be normal because they just want you know like kick each other in the nuts and like have weird sub dom stuff. Except the their dom is like Hegelian Marxist dialectics. <laughs> One woman, a leading figure in the Red Army faction, was told that she had sinned and she needed to beat herself unconscious. Now, she tried. After hours of punching herself in the face like that scene at a fight club, she was eventually forced to ask for help in knocking herself out. Now, this was actually like a, a, a fail deadly. Like, she couldn't beat herself to death and Maury knew she, or she couldn't beat herself unconscious and Maury knew that she wouldn't be able to and thus would have to ask for help. By asking for help was admission of more mistakes, which would need further beatings. Yeah, so on January 7th, everybody helped her and beat her to death. Her crime, as accused by Hiroko, was caring too much about her femininity and her appearance by simply keeping her hair long. All these groups hate women so much. This one is this one very much did. According to Mori and Hiroko, remember Hiroko is a woman, the feminine the concept of, of a feminine woman was connected to the bourgeoisie and had to be eliminated. This included bathing, not cutting your hair short, or having sex, specifically for women. Within less than a month, on their strange mountain compound, they had murdered eight of their own members. Ten would be dead by the end of January. All of them beaten to death in a strange group of ritual revolutionary violence. When one woman became pregnant, Maury was so infuriated that she didn't accept that she did not own her newborn child, and instead that her newborn, or unborn child rather, quote, belonged to the revolution, that being him, that he directed one of his members, a former medical student, to go buy textbooks because he wanted to give her a C-section and steal the baby. Like, the, you know, like, that whole stat about how the 60s and 70s had, like, such a massive rise in serial killers in the US, partially due to, like, the amount of lead that was in the air and in the water. Like, yeah, it's just like that, except it's the amount of lead pipes they're hitting each other with. Yeah, like, you know... I they're feel- absorbing them through some weird communist photosynthesis photosynthesis of getting hit in the head with things <laughs> like you know go fight the police stop like stop doing this shit to each other i mean he didn't end up doing the c-section but he did 
order her to be beaten unconscious while eight months pregnant, which killed her. Oh, this is and, this is all yeah. so just like horrific. As the bodies began to pile up, what constitutes as a crime against the revolution were continuously narrowed down. Sex had been strictly forbidden the entire time, but was often discovered because people are gonna fuck. Only the women were punished. Even something as simple as taking a bath was considered a crime because being clean was considered a desire and therefore counter-revolutionary, and people would be savagely beaten unconscious for it. Other people were murdered. So soon... Everybody is just a shambling zombie of filth, barely eating, covered in their own like disgust for weeks at a time. Where are they disposing of all these bodies? They're just chucking them out back. Because by February, surviving members talk about how the entire base smelled of nothing but alcohol, body odor, and rotting corpses. I was about to say, I better smell crazy in there, but you just answered that for me. However, by then the police were closing in on them because like they weren't like trapped to that area. Members occasionally were sent out to procure supplies. And a lot of these guys said, fuck this. I'm leaving when they, uh, and they, and eventually the cops were closing in on them. So when they heard about that, they decided to abandon their camp and walk through the Japanese Alps in the middle of winter. Fuck. Many of them immediately got lost, and soon this shambling group of disgusting odor creatures stumbled into the town of Karazawa, wearing rags and smelling like shit. And when someone saw them, they called the cops, and they were all arrested. Because, like, they didn't, the cops didn't know what was happening out there, Yeah, but they did know, like, the United Red Army was a criminal group, because they were plotting, you know, violent revolutions to be arrested. Now, the five of them that didn't get lost, but were stuck out in the middle of the winter, took refuge in a vacation villa known as Asama Sanso, sparking what would be known as the Asama Sanso incident. Once inside... Once anything is called an incident, it's... The incident. Now, once inside, they ran into the wife of the villa's caretaker, a woman named Musaka Muta, who they took hostage and then locked themselves inside. Now, Muta's husband, who was just outside walking the dog, returned and saw something was off. All the furniture had been pushed against the windows and the doors, and he called the cops. The cops quickly reacted, blocking off all the nearby roads and cutting off any escape route through the mountains that the group might take. But they didn't plan any rescue operations. Instead, they simply waited, hoping the group would surrender. Instead, the group didn't even bother to contact the cops, ignored the entire situation, and stayed upstairs watching TV, which is <laughs> ironic in retrospect. <laughs> now, there is a funny side story here. One of the things that they saw on TV was Nixon going to China, and that was apparently- I am very much a friend of Mao Zedong. This was hugely demoralizing to them because, like, obviously, like, they were allies of, like, the communist Chinese revolution that's, you know, eternal and forever going. So, like, that's something that they they idolize. And they're like, why the fuck are they meeting with Nixon? They saw this as, like, China abandoning them, despite the fact they're just five unwashed weirdos in a mountain compound. Like, they were in the mountains for, what, six weeks? Two months? Two months. Like, what can you do with your life? In they two had murdered months. twelve people at this point. Yeah, like all all of them, their own people. I should put. They have not killed a single quote unquote bourgeoisie. They have not killed a single like a functionary of the state. They had only beaten a dozen of their own people to death. Like the police, like 
it's two months. They have probably just figured out how the photocopier works, like, to, like, photocopy, you know, wanted posters. Like... Now, their sweet Netflix binge ended when the cops finally cut the villa's electricity, set up loudspeakers, and began constant calls for the group to surrender. The group did not respond. Give up. We are going to blow you up if you do not give up. We will give you free Netflix and some microwave popcorn. Give up, please. We will give you a bar of soap. For the love of God, we can smell you out here. We will give you paraben-free soap and sulfate-free shampoo. Get your, please, dirty, stinking ass out of there. <laughs> I know it smells crazy in there, and she cannot she cannot stand your odor. Please leave. <laughs> You're shitting up the place. Now, the group didn't respond, even when some of their parents showed up to ask them to give up. Nobody knew how many people the group had killed, or anybody, for that matter, yet. So one of the parents who showed up urging the group to surrender had no idea they had murdered her son. Yeah, but this is what I'm saying is like it escalated so quickly in the space of like two months. Like what like what what do you do with your life on in an average two month span? Like I go to the gym like forty times in two months. I get paid twice in two months. I you it know took them less time to murder a dozen people than it took you to write the Red Army Faction series. Yeah, like, they, they <laughs> killed 12 people in a third of the time it took me to write the Red Army Faction series. Clearly you don't have uh, uh, that revolutionary mindset. You, sir, counter-revolutionary. See, I don't smell bad enough for... Nate and I now have to beat you unconscious. <laughs> um... <laughs> Now, soon the police are planning an operation. One of their tactics included keeping the group awake, you know, making them, you know, tired and loopy. And it's rather than blaring loud music, they set up a base- baseball pitching machine and just continuously <laughs> fed baseballs into it. And then bombarded the villa with baseballs. <laughs> that, is, that is really funny. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Were they like... Breaking the windows, or were they just like hitting one singular wall with baseballs? Uh, they're, they're, ro- they're rotating it because they were li- they were bursting through windows and the walls because this is like a traditional Japanese yeah, 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 vacation yeah, yeah. villa. It has very thin walls, so they're like just blasting through these wooden panels with like curveballs pitched from Robo Pitcher three thousand. I mean, like these people are so tired and malnourished that like I feel like. Even, you know, the softest curveball to the, do- to the dome would obliterate. to dust. Yeah, like, it would literally, like, Thanos snap you. You just, like, disappear. <laughs> Meanwhile, Mori is like, they have invented a self-critique machine. I can just point this at their heads. <laughs> I don't feel so good, Mori. And you just, like, disappear. <laughs> Vanish into a fart cloud of odor. <laughs> uh, now, as... This is happening as cops from Japan's Riot Police Squad, which is their tactical team. It's kind of their SWAT team as well, Mm -hmm. got into position. And then they rolled up a wrecking ball and began bursting their way inside. I mean, like, if if baseballs are going through the wall, you don't really need, like, a wrecking ball. Just like, hey, what is a a wrecking ball other than a very big baseball? (laughs) Maybe they painted it some stitching on the side, you know? (laughs) Just go, like, full OJ Simpson, just get in a crew, uh, like, a... Ford Bronco and just drive through the wall. 
We've imported a white Bronco from California specifically for this. <laughs> now, bursting into the villa was easy, and cops rushed into the lower levels, all under a hail of gunfire. Now, the gunfire was entirely one-sided. The cops were armed, of course, but they decided early on, we can't kill these guys because they were worried that if they killed them, they would turn into martyrs yeah. for the revolutionary cause. So the cops charge in. Two of them are shot and killed. Another like dozen cops are wounded. A journalist is killed in the hail of gunfire who gets a little too close. All while the cops don't shoot back. I mean, like, they're all so iron deficient. They probably like stood up too quick and they're like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> now the cops at one point, like they're because the, there's barricades all throughout the villa. It's a three story villa. So yeah. like, once they get to one floor, they run it. They run into like a Frogger esque obstacle course. <laughs> and like all while they're getting shotgun pellets blasted into them. And uh, like they deploy a high pressure water hose to just start blasting through the fucking walls of the third floor remember it's like winter it's february i think so like everybody's drenched in cold water uh and finally the cops get to the third floor everybody surrenders upon seeing the cops once they get that close two guys barricade themselves under a pile of traditional japanese futons and tatami mats and refuse to come out like a child not wanting to go to the dentist when is this level going to come out on rainbow six siege right at one point these guys are hiding under a pile of futons uh get like the cops like all right come out out you fucking losers uh, and they shoot one of the cops at point blank rage, blowing out one of his eyes. <laughs> doing your and, uh, doing your best Gudetama like cosplay. And uh, finally, they everybody is arrested. The entire battle lasts eight hours and is broadcasted live at length by the Japanese national broadcaster NHK. At first, nobody in the group would speak to the police for a couple days. Then Mori accepts responsibility for everything hoping that the, the police would return the bodies of the people that they had discovered in the woods to their families. Now, this the, that small smidgen of like human decency, if you even want to call it that, is enough for the other members who are in police custody to declare Mori counter-revolutionary, <laughs> which then allows them to speak to the cops for some reason. Um, the cops discover everything they did. Everybody involved, Hiroko and Mori, sentenced to death as well as several others now for people unaware the death penalty in japan is more fucked up than it is in most normal places that have the death penalty if you want to consider those normal it's always deeply fucked up you're sentenced to death you're effectively locked in solitary confinement forever and you never know when your sentence is going to be carried out one day a prison guard simply comes to your door tells you today's the day and then you're walked out and executed you never had like in the u.s not saying this is a better way to do it but pe- but people are at least told months ahead of time 30 days ahead of time like your death warrant has been signed to make your peace or whatever mm. in japan like morning bitch it's time to die uh and then you are uh you get uh, the long they they do execution fruit through long drop hanging and that is still today they still do that you'll get the chair marge the chair and now Hiroko and Mori do not get executed. Mori kills himself in prison two years after a sentence, while Hiroko remains in prison until 2008 when she dies of brain cancer. 
Other members are given long, decades-long prison terms, and Japan thought that was that. Enter the Japanese Red Army, a splinter group of the original Japanese Red Army faction, which was founded by Fusako Shigenoru and Shuniyoshi Odikara. Now, both of these were former members of the Red Army faction, and they formed the Japanese Red Army. Now, the Japanese Red Army is by far the most famous Japanese terror group. I mean, political terror group. I don't want to count Om Shinrikyo in that, because they're certainly more infamous because of the uh, the, the gas attack on the subway. And the cabbage but, farting and, like, floating. Yeah, the, they're, they're more well-known internationally, for sure. Yeah. In August 1975, members of the JRA stormed the U.S. and Swedish embassies in Malaysia and took dozens of hostages. Amongst their demands was the re- release of several members of the United Red Army. One of those they demanded the release of, a man named Sakaguchi, refused to be released, rather than because uh, he, he was still awaiting trial. Uh, and he was like, I want to go on trial, plead my case, and use my pulpit to further the communist cause in Japan. He was sentenced to death. Um, he probably really regrets that. He's still sitting on death row as the time of recording. Another member, Kunio Bando, accepted his release. And uh, he went on to join them in Algeria, later taking part in multiple terror attacks with the JRA. And today, he is still alive, as far as we know, and still free, pushing around 80 years old. So, man, Sakaguchi must really fucking hate himself. Yeah, he's like those World War II holdouts who don't know the war is over. Now, uh, Bondo is still wanted by Japan for his new terror attacks. Um, And as far as anybody can tell, he spends his time hiding out in China, Russia, and the Philippines. Um, there's other, there's other members of the JRA are much more famous about this. Um, one of whom, as far as anybody, anybody knows is still alive and is the only person Lebanon has ever granted political asylum for. (laughs) And he's still there hanging out with Hezbollah. Um, He's still trying to figure out the two time zones of Beirut. But, uh, yeah, Bondo is still alive as of time of recording, as far as anybody can tell. And he is still free. He's the only member of the United Red Army to, as far as any, anybody is aware, still be active as a left-wing terrorist. Though at 80 years old, I think most of his terrorism comes down to, like, hoping he takes a shit today. Yeah. And thus is the end of the United Red Army, the revolutionary group that killed itself. Like, sometimes I think about, like, especially when I was researching, like, stuff for the Red Army faction brackets German and like this sort of stuff is like imagine picking up a newspaper at any point between 1971 and 1972 like no wonder all the like boomers got like super paranoid after taking like too much acid like in the 60s and like thought the world was gonna end because like you pick up a paper you have like the PLO you have these guys you have the PLFP Red Army Faction in Germany like all the Gladio shit that was happening in Italy like no wonder Philip K. Dick gave himself schizophrenia, you know? (laughs) Tom, thank you so much for joining me on this punishment episode that I promised (laughs) you. Um, And we do a thing on this show called Questions from the Legion. If you'd like to ask us a question, donate to the show at any level, slide into our Discord, ask us a question there, or message us on Patreon. We will answer it. Today's question comes from our Discord. Yeah, God. What Eurovision piece would you want Momar Gaddafi to recreate with full outfit, choreography, everything? Riverdance. Look, I'm not 
going to say I'm not surprised that you said that as an Irishman. <laughs> Rather than Gaddafi being like the like lead dancer, I want clones of Gaddafi in every role in Riverdance. So I want like 36 That's too much Gaddafi. 36 Gaddafis. Like, either that or... Oh, what? No. Either Riverdance or it's four Gaddafis performing Waterloo. Someone's going to Photoshop that. I look forward to it. Uh, Abafi or something. I don't know. I am going to pick uh, two things from this year since this is the first year that I've ever watched Eurovision. Uh, I am a gay Olympics newbie. Um, either a uh, future lover by brunette <laughs> that was that the Armenian entry yes simply because like she spends her I mean fine song I like brunette she's a fine Armenian pop singer whatever but because Gaddafi would have to spend about two and a half minutes writhing around on an elevated platform singing about how he just wants to look good do good and feel good in, while getting smoothies in cafes. I mean, that, or th- that's the, the a very easiest Gaddafi, answer here. That, that's a Gaddafi energy. The easiest answer here is certainly Karia uh, and uh, Finland's song from this year. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Cha, cha, cha. Because Gaddafi in that weird green sleeve thing doing like a pirate dance back and forth and talking about how he likes pina coladas. All for it. Like, look, I hate to say it, but Gaddafi knew how to serve. Like, he was very cunty. Like, I'll give him that. Um, You know, no one can rock, you know, Dior and Versace sunglasses in the same way that he can, you know. I don't know. Every cab driver that I hang out with here uh, <laughs> has, the sa- has the same ripoffs, man. Maybe Gaddafi didn't die. He just became a cab driver in Yerevan. That explains the, the quality of the driving, honestly. Um, Tom. Thank you again so much for joining me here today and use this space to plug your show. Uh, Listen to Beneath the Skin, the show about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing. We have a new episode that came out uh, a couple of days ago by the time this comes out uh, on evolutionary psychology and tattooing. And like, is there actually like an evolutionary reasoning for tattooing other than them looking cool? Uh, Obviously, I am on this show. Um, Check us out on instagram at beneath the skin pod uh on instagram we share cool stuff there and yeah that's about it this is the only show that i make but thank you so much for listening to it you can check out my books if you like military science fiction or science fiction in general anywhere you get books uh and if you like what we do here consider donating to the show you make everything we do possible you get episodes like this early you get bonus content you get discord access five plus years of bonus stuff including a lot of the curse shit Tom has made us do in the last six months. Um, but again, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, uh, invent a doohickey. <laughs> <laughs>